Okay, whatever. Um, you ready? I'm recording. Yeah. No, but are you ready? Oh yeah. We do this live in one take. Ready? Here we yeah. go. Here we go. Forty minutes. Nine o'clock's the cutoff. Three, two, one. No excuses. I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all of this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. And as a special surprise, today we're being joined by Anthony Basilino, the co-host that is featured on our weekly Twitch streams. Check those out Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern time. What's up? And uh, we hope to see you there. Welcome, Anthony. It's good to be here. Well, we're glad to have you. We're, we're happy that you helped us get started on the Twitch universe where all the kids go. Extended universe. Extended universe. But it's funny because it's the less kid-friendly version of the podcast, if you think about it. Yeah, you could definitely look at it that way. Yeah, we say a lot of things in there that we sh- I'm just waiting for us to be banned. But check us out. It's fun. For those who haven't heard the Twitch streams, haven't seen them yet, who haven't met Anthony and his delightful personality, uh, Anthony, why, why don't you just very, very briefly uh, explain who you are and why you're on the show? I'm a freelance video editor that loves taking pictures. Just a dude here to ask some questions and uh, hopefully get some answers. And I feel like I'm, I've always been like, you know, a curious person. So I feel like I, I hope to like act as like the everyman or just like the average listener through this. And, and I'm looking to just ask some questions along the way. Anthony, we are very happy to have you. And I don't know if you're an everyman, but you certainly are our man. That's right. The man for the job. And that's what we really need here. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today. And uh, I'm sure you're going to have lots of questions, Anthony. And hopefully... We can all come together with some answers for not just you, but for me. I know definitely, Daniel, I hope for you also and also for all of our listeners today, because we are going back to one of the original OG purposes of this podcast, and that is the all-encompassing climate change that hovers over all of us every day like a great cloud, a warning of the future, the doom of the near off. And so uh, we wanted to sort of reanalyze this, take this as like a moment to to step back and see what's happening see what how we've been responding to this and see what might be in the future and 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 if our way of thinking about this is even right without giving too much away and in other news the globe has failed to meet all 20 of the sustainable development goals established by the un in the paris accord many years it's not in the paris accord (laughs) The uh, Japanese Accord many years ago, the Aichi. He's just starting. Daniel's just starting right off with the bad news right here. (laughs) But we wouldn't do it any other way. Yes, the Aichi biodiversity targets set back in 2010, signed by, I don't know, dozens, hundreds of countries. Can't remember the number. 190, is that right? Anyway, this was the Paris Accord, so to speak, of biodiversity. So all the rock stars of climate change we're like, wow, we did such a great job defeating climate change. Now let's do a great job uh, making sure that biodiversity is preserved on this planet. And so they came together in Japan, lobbyists, scientists, politicians from around the world, and they wrote out 20 targets saying, if we do these things, then maybe there's a chance for biodiversity and thus a chance for life on Earth. Ten years passed. And, and 
I think it's worth noting here, Daniel, that the IHG biodiversity targets that were set in 2010 were set because they had previously set targets in 2000 and failed and met to meet a single one of them. So they're like, okay, well, this time we got it. So they set all these, these targets <laughs> for 2020 saying, we got 10 years, we're smarter, we're wiser, we got more technology, we got more money, we learned from the past, and now we're ready to make a real fucking difference. Well, that's, that's kind of how like climate change, like how we react to it. It's like, we just say like, okay, all right, we're going to try to hit this target. And then we fail to hit the target. And they're like, but it's okay because all that economic activity that we generated by missing the target has resulted in all this new technology. So now we can set a new target. And uh, now that we have all the, these new tools, surely we'll hit it, hit these new targets. <laughs> the funny thing is that the new targets are always like not as intense as the old targets. And, uh, the timeline is always shorter. So we're trying to hit something that's not as hard in less time. And at the same time, like patting each other on the back, like, no, don't worry. This time it's, it's going to be fine. I, I want to read through some of these targets, though, because I think it's interesting here. Yeah. What are the targets? So if you if you fail to meet any target, we're, we're going to guess they're probably pretty dramatic things. So let, let's take a look. I'm just going to read some of these highlights here. There's 20 of them. Link on the website, ashesashes.org. Take a look at the things that our leaders have failed to do around the world. Uh, target number one, by 2020 at the latest, I love that line, it's included in all of this, people are aware of the values of biodiversity and the steps they can take to conserve and use it sustainably. Fail. <laughs> that is a very simple goal. <laughs> all we have to say is biodiversity, the variations of life and the importance it has to each and every one of us is something we should all value and work towards. And it's a limited resource that we need to ensure is is met sustainably and that we can ensure will exist into the future. Very simple, right? Remember the campaigns to teach people to recycle, reduce, reuse, recycle, which has since been shortened to just recycle. This should have been a similar campaign in the United States. This should have been a similar campaign around the world. What happened? Fucking nothing. Typical. And that's the, they didn't even ask us to do anything hard here. All people had to do was learn. We didn't even do that. So check one, fail. Anthony, what are your thoughts on the values of biodiversity? I'm, I'm, I was going to ask, like, if we're even still, like, because David brought up that we've reduced it to just recycle and, like, not reduce and reuse. And does, do you know if they're even, like, implementing that in the education system anymore? Like, because I remember thoroughly, like, I don't know if you want me to get into that at all, but, like, I was curious, like, how they've... Well, recycling is a scam anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be, like, that was another question I had, like, or I guess not a question, but, like, how, how is it a scam? Because I've heard that before as well. Well, if you had listened to our episodes, Anthony, we we discuss how recycling and the larger trash industries are scam. In episode Trash World. Trash World. In episode 66, Trash Talk, where we do talk about uh, the recycling industry, the scam that it is, trash to talk. basically just uh, reduce the cost of factory inputs that we then export to uh, developing nations. For the purpose of industrial expansion, for the production of more uh, plastic junk that, that pollutes the ocean and gets into all our bodies. But that's not really the topic of biodiversity. So I'm guessing... No, Anthony's trying to get out of this question. Th that Anthony's trying to get out of the question of the values of biodiversity. I just learned today what biodiversity is. Okay, target one failed. Moving on, but <laughs> target one failed. Here at Ashes Ashes, we're filling in the gaps that the, the the government has left behind. So, if you do anything today after listening to this episode, teach one person about biodiversity, and together we'll get through the Aichi biodiversity target. And if you want a full episode on biodiversity, one of 
um, our favorite episodes and the one to depress you more than any other thing in the world is episode 34, Irreplaceable. Give us another target, David. Okay, well, that one was a pretty easy one, so let's take a look instead at target number three. By 2020 at the latest, incentives, including subsidies harmful to biodiversity, are eliminated, phased out, or reformed in order to minimize or avoid negative impacts, and instead positive incentives for the conservation and sustainable use of biodiversity are developed and applied. Fucking fail. This is one of the biggest failures on here. At the the time when we're supposed to be getting rid of harmful subsidies, things like subsidies for the massive oil giants around the world, for harmful vehicles, for all this stuff that's destroying the biodiversity, land use. So we're supposed to get rid of that. Instead, we're supposed to be investing in things that encourage biodiversity. We haven't done any of it. Countries spend half a trillion dollars a year, more than that, on some of these negative subsidies, and we spend almost nothing on encouraging biodiversity. This is fucking failed with capital F. Why, why even prop these targets up if they don't care to... Um, uh, make an effect mm. or change? Is it just to appear like they care? Well, so, I mean, ostensibly, like these targets are set by, I don't know, like international conservation groups. So like these are like scientists coming together to present what they recommend that then global leaders around the world, like the president of the United States or whatever, will say, okay, I will agree to to this goal. So the scientists don't really have any control of whether or not uh, countries and politicians carry out their recommendations. Well, ultimately, these are pieces of agreements that are signed by politicians that countries are claiming that they're going to commit to. You know, this in that sense is no different than the Paris Accords. That is such a hot topic issue on the U.S. election at the moment. We're supposed to be reducing by X amount of stuff our carbon. But in the same sense here, we're supposed to be increasing the Earth's biodiversity or at least limiting our damage to it. We signed both these things. Ultimately, we pulled out of the Paris Agreement, but it doesn't matter because the countries that are still in it aren't meeting the, the guidelines anyway. Uh, they're just massive things so that somebody can point and say, you know, we're doing something. And then on the other hand, continue destroying the Earth. They say, oh, well, we're trying. We're trying, you know, we're working towards Paris Accord. If I'm a politician and I... Uh, love fracking and I want to frack and I'm always telling everybody that I'm never going to ban fracking and I think we should keep fracking. That doesn't sound like like anybody uh, on the campaign trail today. Yeah, I know, <laughs> a crazy, crazy example. But I just want everybody to know I love frack, you know, oil, it's great, but I have to come across as somebody who really cares about the environment. Mm. So what do I do? Instead, I sign some useless treaty that doesn't have any sort of uh, enforcements or ability to actually make sure that I do the things I'm claiming I'm going to do. And then I can point to you and say, see, I'm in the Paris Treaty. See, I'm in the Aichi biodiversity targets. I signed that. I care about the environment and we're doing everything we can as a as a as an individual and as a nation in order to achieve these things. And then you bulldoze the rainforest. That is the 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 way that politicians go about the world because actually meeting these targets mean devastating or at least dramatically reorganizing the economies of the countries that they're supposed to be representing. And while that would ultimately be a good net benefit for the people and not only in that country but around the world as well as all other living things, the momentary short-term impact is dramatic loss in jobs. And any politician that threatens jobs is not going to be a politician for very long. Therefore, we're caught in this ratchet, this perpetual ratchet where no change can be created except this like very hand-wavy ceremonial symbolism that doesn't actually have any teeth. If we really cared about climate change, it'd be like, if you don't meet these 
agreements, you get nuked or some shit like that. I want to uh, come back to this though, because I think we're just talking about the targets, but I, I, I know we've talked about the job problem and how if a politician really wants to save the environment, they have to nuke the economy. But I think that's only because of the constraints of the current economic system that that we accept and that there are alternatives to things that we should value, can value, that would provide a living you know, and dignified life for all people. 100%. But it would require us to shift what we're valuing. And, and I think at the core of all the issues of these targets and these, these like a report that we're going to talk about similar to the IPCC, is the unwillingness for scientists, politicians, policymakers um, to let go of the profit motive and the, the economic growth as ultimate, uh, as ultimate metric by which to measure success of uh, your people. Well, I mean, ultimately, Daniel, this is a failure of imagination. We can't imagine a future where we can have both a functioning economy, that is, economy that provides the basic needs of every individual, making sure that nobody's wanting for anything, and also defending the earth in that process. People can't physically imagine that that's capable, so they instead cling to what they know works, quote-unquote works, which is, let's destroy the world, but it makes some people very wealthy, and, you know, we'll try and help the poor and pretend to help the earth, but whatever. You know, this is the way things have been. This is the way things will be. And we're just going to slightly adjust that system. And I know you have some system talk in a moment. And we'll get to that. Uh, I don't want to dwell on the rest of these Aichi biodiversity targets. Uh, they're very interesting. Read through them. We'll link them on the website. And it, it's very illuminating that, you know, 10 years can't come and go and we've achieved nothing. And a lot of metrics in a lot of countries, we've actually moved backwards. Things are worse than they were before. Um, some have improved, but nothing has been met. And uh, that's sort of the theme for today. Despite our best efforts, despite the way that we talk and write and research and, and declare political statements, that we continue to make things worse. And the only way to get around this is to stop doing the same things that we keep doing that aren't working. These useless targets, these useless treaties that can't be enforced, the ways that we think about the economy, these larger systemic issues that we're going to get into, and instead start imagining really working on that imagination on what is possible, what we could be doing, and what we need to be doing in order to enact any sort of actual substantive change. But like I said, we'll get to that. So uh, not to dwell on this too long, because we've got a lot of topics to cover here. So I'm going to let Daniel take it on from here. All right. So we failed to respond. Uh, we failed to meet any of the sustainable development goals as a, as a globe. Um, as a result, the earth is on fire. Um, Warming has occurred everywhere. Sea ice is melting. Species are going extinct. Topsoil is being lost. You know, just the typical, typical things that are going on. Um, maybe we should talk a little bit about why we're failing, David and Anthony, if that sounds good to you. And I think mm-hmm. where better to start than our economic frameworks? Because as you point out, so much of this thinking is tied to economic thought. And I want to pull up a report real quick. It's called the Medias Report. All right, hold up. Before you get into this, Anthony. Yeah. You are here as our everyman. And maybe that's not exactly fair because we spent the last few days and weeks making you read all sorts of horrible and depressing news. But if you had to point to these failures in the systems, what do you think is the problem? The system, man. Yeah. I, that, I would say something as easy as like say, blaming it just on like capitalism. It's hard for me to get specific, but I. I does it come, does it 
like come from before that before capitalism has like the uh, environment been like damaged like it does go back further than that right Ooh, it sounds like anthony's on to something but before we go down that road i think daniel wants to point to these economic systems that exist right now well i mean capitalism is an interesting word you know it's a system by which uh people who own all the resources get all the profit and they don't really doesn't really matter where they live, who they are. If they have the money, they can own it. It sounds like commie talk. I think you mean capitalism is about free markets, free people, and the liberty to get the, the, the sweat of your work back in dollars at the end of the day and move up and down free. and make your American dream uh, real. Salute you, flag and eagles. God bless America. Would it be from the mass amount of consumption because of capitalism, which would be like an even bigger hit on the environment? I mean, yeah, I think all of these things are tied together, right? Yeah, you know, we talked about in episode 11, designing, des- designing deception about how economy was shifted from a needs-based to a consumer ne- uh, consumer-based economy. And yeah, if if more people are are consuming useless goods and we need factories to produce those goods and the factories pollute the land, that's going to contribute to the decline of natural systems. And where capitalism comes in, I think is who owns the land, who owns the factories, right? Because if you're a small community and you depend on the local water table for your drinking water, and you as a local community own a small little factory, you're probably going to be conscious of the fact that you know you need to monitor your inputs and outputs that are impacting your your local resources that is going to be the water that you drink. So what you're saying is you don't pollute your backyard. Right. Like you don't shit where you sleep, so to speak. Exactly. But as we've pointed out, if you are a fund manager at Harvard University, you can purchase up all the land in California where you've identified the lowest water table so you can bankrupt everyone around you and make profit off of grapes that you're going to sell on a global commodities market while everyone starves and dies. Has, has that actually happened? That's, not, that's very specific. Yes. I mean, they, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't say that they're doing it. In, in that type of way, but it's, you know, it's an investment. Uh, we've identified that these properties are going to uh, increase in value over time, and so we're going to purchase them. But it's for education, Daniel, so uh, <laughs> the damage is okay. Education of the elite ivory tower, who, by the way, are the same places where all these reports are coming out on how we can, as long as we reduce emissions and we're smart about our policies and we convert to solar energy, we can keep that GDP going up. We can keep the investment dollars flowing. Foundations, wealthy investors can all be happy. And we're also going to save the world at the same time. Hmm. It seems almost suspect. <laughs> you might say so. That sounds like a lie. That's another way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like a lie. So... A new report came out. It's called Modeling the Renewable Energy Transition in Europe, or MEDEUS. It's a new open-source energy model to guide the transition to a low-carbon European socio-economy. And it came about because basically there's a consortium of European stakeholders. There's several universities, governmental energy agencies, a couple science institutes. They all came together to say and to recognize that the European continent's energy consumption of renewable sources is just 17%, right? So 
only 17% of all the energy in Europe is a renewable, quote-unquote, renewable energy. And we've talked about the problems with that in our episode, Renewable Problems. But they also recognize that there's a large transition undergoing where a lot of the economy is being converted to renewable energy. But as they point out, there's no effort to do this transition in a way that protects the environment and the social welfare of the people at the same time. So this, this consortium, Medeas, has come in to attempt to fill this gap by offering some modeling tools and analyses of all the global interconnected systems of our world, um, such as economy and population, energy availability, energy infrastructure, materials, climate change, land use, and social and environmental impacts to model how this energy transition should be done in a sustainable way to preserve all these valuable things. And as they say, the thing that sets them apart is, quote, the Medeas model offers flexibility and transparency, which reach levels that are rare in the scientific literature, end quote. And that's been a big, huge uh, a criticism from us, David, uh, IPCC report, which we think they come out with these international huge reports saying climate change is a big problem, but then they offer these kind of weak policy adjustments. Filled with magical thinking and magical technology that doesn't exist while ignoring massive amounts of feedback loops that make the problem much worse than even these already dark, doom-filled reports lead you to believe. Right. And so when they said that they're, they're more focused on transparency and they're like going to hit this hard like no one else has, I got a little bit hopeful. I was like, finally, a report comes out that's really going to put our feet to the fire. And they even write on their website, this is a really spicy uh, quote from them, our results show that the continuation of current trends will lead in the future to an explosive cocktail of energy shortages initiated by peak oil and impacts of climate change that we think without a profound change in the currently dominant social priorities and economic system will most likely lead to a scenario of regionalization, conflict, and ultimately global crisis leading to the collapse of our modern civilization. End quote. It's heavy. That's powerful. I like the words they use. It makes it sound a little bit more romantic. Okay. I look, romance at the end of the world. Romance uh, at the end. Anthony Single, everybody. <laughs> But then, so that's, that's what I found that quote hidden somewhere, like on their website or something. But then this is where it gets interesting. So they basically presented uh, all the reports of this huge project in the model itself, which is open source. People can play around with it. It has like 4,000 different variables. It's very complex. They have a 130-page book of recommendations that you can just imagine every mayor and governor across the world just like sitting down and reading and like one, one swift... Uh, take. Oh, yeah. And they have a 10-minute documentary. And in the documentary, they basically say, here's what we think will happen to global GDP. And here's what we think will happen to CO2 emissions from fossil fuels. And basically, if we play it smart, GDP is going to climb steadily past 2050, according to historic trends. <laughs> and the head of this entire project says, quote, if we start the transition straight away, Although there is an initial increase of emissions due to burning fossil fuels to power the renewable energy transition, in the end, emissions will drop and the economy won't be seriously affected, end quote. Awesome. So what a difference, right, between those two statements. One is, hey, we're going to have collapse of our modern civilization. The other is, look, if we just uh, transition to solar power, we'll be fine. And in fact, 
the growth of our global uh, 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 economy is just going to keep going up and up, baby. Buy stocks, whatever. Party on. Eat caviar. We're good to go. Invest in those <laughs> solar companies. <laughs> and so I guess nothing new, right? Scientists try to warn us, and then their warnings get aggregated into these reports that international conglomerates probably get paid a lot of money to make, and they tell us everything's going to be fine as long as we invest more money and we focus on the almighty dollar. I feel like it's even more difficult now because I feel like more so than ever, we're in a time where people don't even have as much trust as they used to in scientists. Well, I wonder why, Anthony. Maybe it's because their messages of doom are a, a long-term thing and something that they're constantly walking back. And then there's all these new reports consistently coming out saying, oh, actually, we were wrong about this thing. It's way worse. We were wrong about this, too. It's also way worse. And we have this dichotomy where people, first off, can't imagine a future that's long-term. They can't think forward and be like, oh, this was predicted a long time ago. And when scientists get anything wrong, oftentimes because they've underestimated, and they say, look, they got it wrong anyway, so why should we listen to these people? But that, yeah, that's insane to me because I feel like, I feel like common sense says like we are in a constant state of changing. And if like, I mean, this is like related to the coronavirus, but like everything's constantly like new and changing with that. And like, it is crazy that like they can get it quote wrong once or a few times. But then, like, you know, the information changes. So, like, I don't know. I just feel like that's, like, the public not trusting in, like, scientists. Like, this just makes it even more difficult with when it comes to climate change. It is. But now we have the year of 2020, and I think a lot has changed. And I, I want to talk a little bit about what has changed this, this year, what we've seen play out. And I think between last year and this year and the crisis of the pandemic, as you mentioned, Anthony, that has really brought about a shift in the way that people think about things. We instead have this sort of moment where most Americans, where a lot of the media are now talking about climate change in a way that, oh, this is not something that's coming. This is something that's happening now and is affecting me or maybe not necessarily me directly, but people I know or people I can imagine in California and Colorado and in Seattle and Portland, whatever. I can see it happening and it's in my face. And now all of a sudden these risks are starting to feel real. And so um, I don't know what this what this will mean long term. Maybe we'll see some sort of renaissance in a re-trust of science. But whatever is happening, you know, this shit is actually hitting the ground. We're seeing it burn in the United States, which has been something that's been lacking for a lot of Americans where they didn't understand that this is coming home sooner rather than later. And I think that is a really important inflection point in these larger processes. Well, I think it's interesting you make that point, David, because I feel like I feel like I'm with Anthony in that the pandemic is actually a great example of how where we have a global pandemic and like hundreds of thousands of people have died in the United States. And yet people still believe that scientists are telling us to wear masks because they want to destroy the economy and they don't care about us. Mm -hmm. And it, the, the manufacturing of consent that has like brainwashed, uh, you know, huge swaths of global civilization to just not just be suspicious of everything, but I mean, it's so easy to convince somebody that their state is on fire because like, I don't know, immigrants came in and like, that's the reason why the forest is on fire and like their corrupt politician mismanaged it. Like there's so many alternate realities that someone can attach to that we've already lost like 99% of all species on this earth. It's like happening right in front of our face and we can't see it. 
Well, I, I think you're also being misled a little bit by some of the larger narratives that are happening and, and the same sort of forces that have convinced a group of people that these masks aren't in their favor um, are also affecting your perception of this. Uh, something between 70 and 80 percent of Americans believe in wearing masks. 72 percent of Americans believe that you should fine or jail people who don't wear masks. Vast majority of Americans are fully in support of this. They trust the science to see what's happening, and they're happy to do it. And this is on both sides of political parties. It's over 80% of Democrats, over 70% of Republicans. It's a very high level of consensus, much more than anything we've seen before in climate change related. So the very loud minority that is against this stuff, yes, you see them a lot. There are a lot of the news. People talk about them a lot, but they are the minority. The vast majority thinks they're wackos. So if we had the same sort of thing where 70 to 80% of Americans were saying, oh yeah, climate change is here right now and we have to do stuff, we'd be in great fucking shape. And so I actually look at this as saying, wow, look, when people really are stuffed in their face with this thing and they can actually see it killing them, most people get on board very quickly, even with a government that is entirely incompetent in orders and, and, and giving all sorts of advice and responses that are all over the place. And part of the reason why we saw initially that group of people form who were anti-mask was because the government was first saying, oh, don't wear masks. It doesn't do anything. Oh, do wear masks. Oh, we have to wear this type of mask. Not this type. Stay this far apart. It's airborne. It's not airborne. All this fucked up science as people trying to figure everything out was enough for that seed of doubt for these grifters, for these propagandists, for people who benefit from this in order to push that narrative. But even through all of that, even through that mess, even through this horrible response, mm-hmm. the vast majority of Americans, some of the dumbest least scientific people on earth are still believing in the science at the end of the day. And that, if, if you don't find that encouraging, you know, especially now in all of this, um, I don't know what to tell you. You've been taken in by the, the media elite exactly the way they want you to. And, and so I take that same sort of encouragement from these other disasters that are happening in front of us. We had one of the worst fire seasons in history here this year. Um, we could do a whole episode on that, but I really don't want to. We've talked about fire before in one of our very earliest episodes uh, complete with a beautiful narrated skit that Daniel did. That's episode. Is that episode? Episode episode twelve. Up uh, in uh, smoke. It's a very fun start. I re- recommend checking that out. We have one of the worst Arctic seasons in recorded history. It's been so incredibly hot up north. The sea ice was at the second lowest level ever recorded, and even now, as we're rec- recording this episode, late in October. When there should be a massive amount of freeze happen, there are large parts above Siberia where there is no ice still. This is totally unheard of. We're at the lowest level extent in our recorded records of the sea ice in the Arctic North. Uh, right now, it's breaking everything. We don't know what's going to happen. And we are at this precipice where we say, okay, we're no longer at a time when we're talking about how the future of the Arctic is, is going to be very different. Instead, we are at that time. We don't know what's happening. The next question of what is What is next is we don't know because we've never seen anything like this. The models even can't predict this anymore. So we are in for a fun ride. And what happens up top has ramifications for the rest of the world, much like these biodiversity questions that we're talking about earlier. That was a surprisingly optimistic point you said earlier about the mass statistics. I'm an optimistic guy, Anthony. (laughs) David, I'm surprised quite optimistic of you. And that is a rare form to see, a rare sight to see here on Ashes, Ashes. I'm an enormous optimist, and if I wasn't, I wouldn't be alive to do this show. But let me tell you something. So I, I guess that is encouraging, but my concern is, and you know, I don't want to just be like the person talking about concerns here, but 
to eventually get back to what we might speculate is at the core of, of these flawed thinkings that lead us down failed predictions and, and failed goals. The fact that we're seeing such massive consequences now, I think, in a lot of ways, shows us how late we are. Mm-hmm. Because I think we, just as, as civilization, we think on very short scales. I mean, the whole economy is based on short-term profits. You mentioned subsidies for the fossil fuel industry. I mean, what kind of group of people gets together to say, wow, if we pump all this uh, natural resource out of the earth that took millions of years to form and we just use it up in like 300 years, well, we'll, we'll have some pretty good economic growth. And then thinks that that's a good idea shows some pretty uh, lack of imagination, as you said. Because, okay, you want to talk about the Arctic. Think about the time scale that climate change ap- actually operates on, right? You, we're, I mean, we're talking about uh, uh, this a, a total complex bio geo anthro system that is the Earth and all its complexity. And one of the things that really blew my mind early on in learning about climate change are systems like the uh, thermohaline circulation, which is also known as the Great Ocean Conveyor Belt one of the large-scale systems that regulates global climate. And early on, I was thinking of climate change, like emissions go up, temperature goes up, and then things get hot. But when we're talking about climate change, we're really talking about interconnected global systems. And in particular, with the Great Ocean Conveyor Belt, you have wind near the Earth's equator, which pushes ocean surface uh, currents towards the poles from the Atlantic Ocean up to the North Pole, where that warm is cooled, It becomes dense from salinity, and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean. Then that water makes its way down to the Antarctic, and then either upwells in the Southern Ocean or the Pacific Ocean before returning as warm surface water at the uh, equatorial Atlantic Ocean. It's a big circulating system. Now, I want to ask you a question, Anthony. If you imagine this great conveyor belt of ocean water that's, uh, you know, churning, going from North Pole to South Pole, uh, or the Antarctic, back up to the North Pole. How long do you think that that would take to do just one, one cycle? Uh, I'm just going to take a shot in the dark and say like a year. Okay. It's a pretty good guess. Go a little bit higher. Five years. One, one more try. Third guess. Go a little, little bit higher. A little bit higher? Make, make ten a, years. Ten years, okay. Or should I go on? The correct answer. Okay. The correct <laughs> I like having Anthony here because now I'm not the one that's tricked into Dan. <laughs> tricky question. Great. Do you want to take a guess, David, or do you already know the answer? 10,000 years. Okay. I don't know, Daniel, you tell me. No. Well, that's, you ruined the punchline because it's 1,000 years. You <laughs> messed up everyone's expectations. You guessed too high. <laughs> well, Anthony guessed one year. It's 1,000 times more than that. It's 1,000 years. That's a very, very long time. If we're even seeing effects from that, we have. We have so we are so far gone. We're in trouble. So you know why water sinks to the bottom of, of the ocean in the North Pole, Anthony? Mm, no. I'll give you a hint. Dense water sinks. What would make water more dense in the North Pole? Sorry, I'm laughing. I, I feel like I'm being cornered right now. Uh, I feel like I didn't do my homework or something. What makes water more? Can you repeat, David? That? What? What would make water more dense in the North Pole? Bro, what if it had an extra helium molecule? <laughs> I mean, hydrogen. What if it had an extra hydrogen molecule? I don't know. Does like that... Heavy, heavy water. I feel like bro. it has to do Just, with the temperature. I'll give you a hint. It has to do with salt. <laughs> okay. So I was nowhere near it. It's, it's, be, 
No, it's because it gets more salty up there. It gets more salty because the ice, the water, the water turns to ice, right? Ice always freezes as as fresh water, leaving back, leaving behind a bunch of salt. So it makes that water really dense. Well, what happens uh, when it gets really hot in the North Pole? What what are we experiencing now? No sea ice. It's not it's not happening. So how's that water going to sink? What's that? What's gonna What's that going to do to the global climate? We have no idea. Is there a point to this? The point, David, is that people talk about climate change as if it's this discrete thing, right? That it can be considered as an isolated problem. If, if we just cut back on emissions, we install some solar panels, we're good to go. But that could not be further from the truth. Climate change is really a topic that, that, that explains that when we disregard the earth, there are inalterable cascading consequences that result in cataclysmic life-ending changes for thousands and thousands of years to come. Yet we're still talking about the 2030 plan, the, the next 10-year plan, the how are we going to reduce emissions by X percent over the next X number of years to have incremental change towards a solution that we can all agree on that will still allow GDP to grow. The, we are at an existential crisis right here. We're talking about uh, you know, the foundation of human civilization and, and most of life on Earth. No, I, I like this. I like this angle, Daniel, where you're trying, you're saying, you know, climate change is comparatively, it's a very long process. It takes place over thousands of years. We tend to have most of our models extend until 2100 and then they stop, but it keeps on fucking going for a long ass time after that. So it's just because we get to 2100, even if we were to maintain a low level of warming, say one and a half, two degrees Celsius, well, that just makes all those problems that we see now farther in the future. And the hope has always been that, oh, technology will save us at that point. Sorry, wrong. That's not going to happen. Anyway, I think that's a good point, though. And, and I, it, reframing climate change as something that is really long, I think, helps really drive home the fact that this is a short-term problem. We're always talking about how uh, right now, part of the problem when it comes to overcoming these systemic issues is that they're long-term problems and we are short-term thinkers, at least in modern day. So when we are presented with a problem that's long-term, we, we just would rather ignore it until it becomes a short-term, really bad problem, and then we can try and overcome it at that point. But I have bad news in that the long-term problem of climate change is that it's going to happen over thousands of years, but it is a very short-term fucking problem that those problems introduced by climate change are going to start affecting us now. And they have been, right? And this I'm going to talk a little bit in a moment about short-term, long-term thinking and the, the modern day, but uh, we are already starting to see a shift in some of the ways that people are considering these problems because what is to come is really terrifying. There's a great set of articles uh, ProPublica did recently. One is a collection of maps based on the 4.5 degrees Celsius warming and the 8.5 degrees Celsius business as usual, um, which most politicians, climate scientists will say eight and a half is not possible. And it, we're doing a lot to avoid that. And that's probably true based on the, the IPCC report that it was based on. But the latest IPCC report that isn't out yet, but that they're still working on and the early preliminary models have come out, finds that not only is eight and a half business as usual possible, but actually it's increasingly likely because the actual business as usual is something like 13 degrees Celsius. So the four and a half that we see now that is very likely to happen is actually closer to eight and a half. So great, we're fucked. But what does this actually physically mean in the short term? And I'm going to narrow down short term here not to mean months or years, but decades. Because I really think a decade is a short term thing. Um, and I'll, I'll talk about why. 
So in a couple decades, if we continue more or less as usual, um, or even a, a, you know, work towards getting net zero by 2050, which is the, the radical Joe Biden plan that, uh, that Trump is, is, is saying is so crazy and impossible and requires tiny windows and whatever. If we head towards that, which of course, you know, would never actually happen, but you know, is the, the fancy window dressing that Biden has put on his campaign so that he can both frack and also claim that he's going to be net zero in a few years. Anyway, what does that mean, Daniel? That means in the South. What is it? It means, um, what was the question? What does, what does decades of unchecked global warming mean for the people of America? And we're going to focus this on America because that's what these ProPublica articles that are so good are about. But these same types of patterns are going to happen around the world. And as we talked about repeatedly on the show, this means billions, billions with a B of climate refugee in the next few decades. And that's a lot of people. The, the, the migrant crisis that we saw, yeah, it's, it, it's in the like hundreds of thousands or millions those are the, the worst migrant crises in history. We're talking billions. I don't know. Sounds like a bunch of illegals to me. <laughs> yeah, a bunch <laughs> of illegals. So what, is it, what do you think this means for the United States? Like if, if we're warming, you know, two, three, four and a half degrees Celsius, four and a half degrees by the end of the century, like what does that mean? What does eight and a half degrees by the century mean? Uh, I was going to say a lot of migration. It does mean a lot of migration. We'll get to numbers in a minute. No, I think there's probably going to be like uh, someone in San Francisco is probably going to like develop an app you know like uh instead of like pokemon go where you're like searching for invisible pokemon you're gonna be like searching for underground aquifers and like if you find it that app developers come and murder you and like take the land and then like set up a water station <laughs> okay okay Thank you for that, Daniel. You've thought about that. Are you developing that? He's he's working on this. Don't download any apps, Daniel. Send you. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to use some concrete examples of what day-to-day -day life would be for a lot of parts of the world. If you're in the South, which is where Daniel and I were from, where we grew up, summers in the South are hot. It sucks. It's hot. It's humid. It's, it's no good. And that was, you know, a decade or two ago. And it's only going to get worse. So in the coming few decades, you know, we're talking 30, 40 years from now, we're going to see an additional 80 deaths per 100,000 people annually. And that doesn't sound like anything, right? 80 to 100,000. What the fuck ever? Who cares about that? Um, to put that in perspective for you, the opioid crisis, which has paralyzed this country, which media has written about, which billions of dollars of fines have been applied to, that was an additional death of 15 per 100,000 annually. And we're talking about a crisis that is five times greater than the opioid crisis solely from heat, nothing else. That is the future for the South of America. The temperatures are going to get so hot across this country. Tempe, Arizona, a place that is considered obviously hot as hell. It's in the middle of Arizona. The summers are terrible there. Daniel and I have been there in the middle of summer. It's hot as hell, though it is a dry heat. So, you know, it could be worse. Uh, well, that type of summer is going to be the norm for Buffalo, New York within three decades. So then you ask, well, what's the temperature going to be like in Tempe? Well, they're going to have an average summer temperature of 100 degrees a few decades later. So that, that, that means between night, between day, between the cool days, the warm days, the average temperature of Tempe during the summer is going to be 100 degrees. That means routinely temperatures 115, 120 that is not sustainable. The Mississippi River Basin, if we're talking about areas with lots of water to counter these dramatic droughts that are going to be affecting the crops in those other areas. Well, we on the show, Daniel, have talked about heat and humidity before. You'll remember in episode 25, heat death. 
where we introduced the concept of wet bulb temperatures. For those of you unfamiliar with it, this is a temperature that between the, the actual temperature outside caused from the sun and the humidity level, the human body becomes incapable of cooling itself and you literally cook to death unless you can find shade, uh, breeze, or air conditioning. And the higher this wet bulb temperature gets, the more shade, the more wind, the more air conditioning you require before the human body or, you know, the body of crops or animals or whatever it is can't sustain cooling itself down and just expires. It's actually a really interesting concept if you're not familiar with it. Basically, the body expels heat by bringing blood close to the surface of your skin so that it can, you know, do a heat exchange between your blood and the air. Um, also, you know, sweating and all this stuff. But, but if you have nothing to transfer the heat to, right, then there's a problem. If you, th if you put a fan on yourself, you can blow, like you're cycling the air around your body, so it's constantly giving you a new source of, th of things for your body to exchange heat with. But what happens when the humidity is so high that you're essentially sitting in a bathtub full of water, it's just, you know, uh, uh, it's not so dense that you can't still breathe because there's oxygen in the air. Yeah, you have, you have no evaporation happening. Right. So the evaporation doesn't carry the heat away, so you cook. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> well, we don't have these high wet bulb temperature days here in the United States. It gets high, but not to these dangerous levels. We've seen the first times it's getting into these dangerous levels very recently in places like India, uh, Pakistan, Bangladesh, um, very briefly. And it, it causes disaster there. But these are going to become routine in parts of Louisiana and parts of actually Arizona, which is a place known for being not humid, well, guess what? Things are going to change, and you're going to have these corners of it that between the heat and the humidity are going to be literally deadly to go outside. So that's coming. And continuing the humidity, the entire Mississippi River Basin is going to have so many days that are so humid that even the smallest amount of work or sports will end up causing you to have heat exhaustion and heat stroke and possibly pass from that. That means there's large portions of the country where you will not be able to work outside for vast majority of the day over the summer. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, crop yields across the South from Texas to Alabama into Oklahoma, Kansas, and Nebraska, well, those are going to decline by up to 92%. So how many deaths per 100,000 is that going to add to our little heat equation, David? 92% of crops in some of these areas are not going to grow. That means if I had 100 bushels, now I have eight. That is not fucking sustainable. It will push up the value of those individual bushels, though, on the market. Oh, yeah, it's good, good for the economy. Those commodity markets buy futures now. This is going to cause people to move. People aren't going to want to live in these places, right? They're estimating that one in 12 Southerners will move out to the West or to the Northwest over the, just the next few decades. That's 30 years. 700,000 people will be abandoning the Bay Area due to sea level rise. 13 million people in all over the coming decades will be moving from some parts of the United States that are most affected by climate change to parts that are less affected, uh, especially areas like Wisconsin, Michigan, the Northeast, the Northwest. Uh, but moving is expensive. Moving is, is difficult. You're going to see concentrations in a lot of southern cities, Atlanta, Houston, as people flee these rural areas, which are much more affected. And that's going to cause their own crises. Atlanta is already a disaster of a fucking city, as Daniel and I can tell you. And the huge rise you're going to see in inequality of people coming in and fleeing there is just going to make it that much worse. Well, wouldn't the mass amount of migration and uh, like crop yields, like wouldn't that cause a, a large sum of like 
uh, food shortages as well. Oh yeah, a hundred percent. And that this stuff isn't even integrated into this. But you're right, Anthony. And we actually have seen in this country similar types of of crop disasters. Uh, anybody who's gone to elementary school, middle school, high school in the United States has learned about the Dust Bowl out west. This period where, due to some irresponsible agriculture practices and also a a disaster of drought. Uh, caused much of the Midwest to turn into a literal dust bowl with massive dust storms and completely devastated the crops out there, right? You can read about it in John Steinbeck's Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, it, it was it was a, a very tough period of American history. Lots of people died. It caused a lot of poverty. And in fact, the areas that were affected by this are still, 80 years later, some of the areas in the United States with the slowest economic growth, with some of the, the lowest per capita income, the least college education, and more poverty, they have literally never recovered from these Dust Bowl activities. Well, guess what? So part of the Dust Bowl issues was just bad farming because like, that region of the country has some of the most fertile like ground. I don't want to say it's... Had. Well, I don't even want to say it's the most fertile, but in terms of the depth of the topsoil, we're talking like massive depth. And so... We were able to get away with really bad farming where the topsoil just like gets blown away because there's just a lot left under there. And yeah, we've depleted a lot of it. But I also want to point out that the victims of, the, of that Dust Bowl were a lot of, you know, like you said, small, uh, small, low income families who were uh, living on borrowed land or they were renting and they were farming. And guess what happened? When everyone went bankrupt, the big banks came in. And they uh, kicked everyone off, which kind of forced this mass migration to California and the Western coast. And the banks took, bought up all the land and started big industrial agricultural corporations. So at the end of the day, if we're facing a billion climate refugees, and guess what? A lot of those are going to be internal to the United States in these places where you're talking about wet bulb temperature and rising heats and crop failures. There's going to be a lot of people, uh, American citizens and uh, non-citizens alike, who are going to be displaced, who are trying to move. And who are our enemies at that time? Because right now, the politicians are selling us this lie that it's uh, indigenous gangs from Honduras coming over to the border, ruining our economy. Meanwhile, who's getting rich and who will continue to get rich? Well, Harvard's doing fine. Their endowment fund is making a a killing off of the water-scarce land that they're buying from. How is that going to impact people who live there, right? And so maybe we should start thinking now how the economy... Uh, interplays with the climate and how corporations have known, oil companies have known well before the 70s, but we know they were stating it to themselves as fact that they were causing climate change. You think companies don't know this? Goldman Sachs has been writing reports to investment companies and like for decades now on how the economy is going to shift when people are displaced from their homes. Maybe we should start thinking about that and preparing for the fact that these companies are perfectly prepared to take your land. And if you still think it's, you know, Mexican immigrants or like uh, black people in your community that are the problem, we got to wake up here. Those are good points, Daniel, but you ruined my punchline, which is that the University of Chicago and NASA in a recent study found that those Dust Bowl era crop yields that caused all those problems you talk about, that caused that long lasting economic devastation, that with this climate change that we have baked in right now will soon be the norm for American farming, at least in the areas where it's currently conducted. Look, when these things start happening to what Daniel's talking about in this disaster capitalism that will swoop in, steal all this stuff, and then tell you that you were the problem. But then these 
these mega banks that seize this land that have to make it profitable will end up using exactly the same practices that caused the problem in the first place in order to try and maintain that level of profit. And we're back in this endless loop until there's none of us left, until we're all fucking dead. And businesses, like Daniel says, are aware of this. They're woke to what is happening. We haven't gotten to our insurance episode yet. It Eventually, uh, we've talked about some flood insurance. We talked about fire insurance. Well, with these devastation that's happening around this country, a lot of insurance companies are now wising up to the fact that, oh boy, it's not profitable to insure these groups of people when all these mega disasters are happening all the time. So they're cutting those insurance. They're just dropping policies. They're telling people, oh yeah, we're not going to sell that to you anymore. We thought you were fine, but actually you were devastated by this fire. So we're never going to, sorry, you're out of luck. So if you want to rebuild, rebuild. More power to you, but if your house burns down next time, you're on your fucking own. And so Florida, uh, who has seen this because of sea level rise, because of hurricanes, California, which has seen this because of the fires, they have stepped in to try and backstop the fact that these insurance companies are, are just abandoning these markets where it's not profitable to insure people because there's too many disasters to to make it profitable to say that they're, oh, just enough disasters that we can continue you know, insuring this stuff. And what does that mean? Instead, it means that if people continue building in these disaster zones, continue setting them up for failure, then it's going to be on the taxpayer's dime that we have to bail them out. But I've got news for all of you. All the states are fucking broke. There's no money for bailing out anybody anymore because of coronavirus, and it's not going to get any better. There is no light at the end of the tunnel of this scenario, and we're continuing to push this rock up the hill thinking we're going to get something different next time. No, it's time for some new fucking thinking, and we'll get to that in a moment. But more of the same thinking, more of rebuilding, more of continuing these economic systems, as Daniel is talking about, as Daniel will continue to talk about, is just going to keep getting us into the same exact problem over and over until there is no more money, until there is no more land, until there is no more life, until there are no more people. And the only thing that can stop that is a radical way of reimagining everything. These are some whammers. I, well, yeah, I think... As like so, a step one of reimagining, right? We always say the world may be broken, but it doesn't have to be. And then we go on these depressing rants about how broken the world is. Because if we don't realize how broken the world is, we have no hope of even imagining a better future. And I think just as one quick example of like the mismatch uh, in terms of the the scales of our activity and and the flawed thinking embedded in in our civilization. Um, I recently came across an article about election cycles and deforestation uh, in Brazil of the Amazon rainforest, which I think is kind of interesting. Basically, new research is being carried out to understand the effects of election cycles on natural resources around the world. And in a published article in the Journal of Environmental Economics and Management, author Sharon Tyler compares satellite deforestation data to local municipal election cycles in Brazil between 2002 and 2012. And what she finds is that deforestation rates are 8 to 10% higher in areas where incumbent mayors are running for re-election. And this effect alone has accounted for some 3,500 square kilometers of forest loss since 2004. RIP. RIP. And... I mean, it's very interesting to study this. It basically, it's that you know, incumbent mayors they have power, and when they want to reelect themselves, they'll either 
open up the floodgates of, of deforestation. It could be in part to fund themselves uh, because they actually own the livestock and, and logging companies. Or it could be that they're taking bribes from those companies, or they're just trying to spur economic activity in the short term, like we talked about, to make it seem like they're the better leader um, just to get that election. And you know, the author offers this idea. She suggests, quote, institutional constraints on local politicians may be weak, thus corrupt politicians are able to misallocate more natural resources and may have more incentives to do so, blah, blah, blah. Uh, centralized forest governance reduces local politicians' ability to manipulate resource allocation. She goes on to say, since Brazil's environmental policy and enforcement is currently administered by a central agency, electoral deforestation cycles in Brazil could be worse under a scenario where forest governance is decentralized, end quote. Basically, what she's saying is that if the state has a tighter control on its local politicians, it can reduce uh, corruption and thus reduce deforestation. And I don't necessarily agree with this. I think it's worth looking at uh, just real quick because this type of thinking is part uh, of a lot of discussions right now. For instance, police reform in America, like, oh, instead of abolishing the institution, those in power advocate for more training and oversight and general reform of police. And what these ideas have in common is this belief in existing institutions and a powerful central state to rein in the bad actors in the context of the same institutions and states that gave birth to those actors in the first place. And I think what it comes down to is that these discussions are kind of a distraction, right? Whether or not we should centralize or decentralize Brazil's natural resources, I think obviously we should decentralize them. But the problem is that they exist in a, in a context of a commodities market that that is not confined to the political borders of Brazil. Brazil's economy is similar to many others in that it does not exist in isolation, but it is rather connected to a web of international uh, interests. Just to throw out a quick stat, in December 2019, Brazil's annual exports of beef was a record 1.8 million tons, which was 11% higher than its 2018's record. And in 2020, despite the global pandemic, uh, feedlot producers. They're expecting to end this year with a 10% higher production of beef and pork than last year, driven by economic growth and exports to other countries. So whether the Amazon forest is controlled by a central state governed by the likes of Bolsonaro, who said that he wants to burn the entire forest to the ground, that's a good sign. Or whether it's governed by like local actors, they're both going to auction it off to the highest bidder so long as our world operates under this globalized financial framework. And guess what? Decentralization of resource control. How do you think indigenous people have existed for 300,000 years before the advent of global finance? That's the very definition of being rooted to place is what we talked about earlier, David, where you said, don't pollute your backyard. And ultimately, I think what this comes down to is the fact that in our world, our society is this. If you make more money, you're a winner. If you don't make money, you're a loser. And how do you make money? You sell a product to the highest bidder using the cheapest labor possible. And where does all economic value ultimately derive from? It derives from the land and people. Therefore, the only way to win in this society is to dominate land and people. So until we change the rules of the game, Instead of, instead of asking things like in this Medias report and other reports, how can we keep GDP, that is the almighty dollar, growing at a steady you know, 2% per year or whatever the global target is, 
what if we changed the rules of the game? What if we started asking, how can we increase you know, dignity for human beings? How can we respect local communities? Or how about this? One of the targets of that uh, Aichi biodiversity goals, David, one of them is like prevent the extinction of species. Why do we need someone to put a dollar on that? Why, why do we need someone to say like, we're going to have a trillion dollar loss to our economy over the next 50 years if we don't keep biodiversity? Because why are we valuing things by the dollar anyway? Isn't it enough to say we don't want to lose the, the fucking earth and all life on it? But that would require us to imagine something different. I just feel like we've been all brainwashed into like, like money to me is like, at least recently, is just like a made up thing that we, I don't know. I, I forgot what I was going to say about it. I lost my train of thought because there's like music playing in the background and it like threw me off. <laughs> I do want to comment on that. So this is easier said than done. And I think you're right, Anthony, that like this type of thinking, the reason why our societies propagate in this way is it it's deep. The, the cultural pathology runs deep. You know, it's, it's the wetico disease, as we've talked about. It's everyone propagating the same ideas because it's embedded in, in the way we talk and the way we think. And I mean, recently, I, I was just reflecting on the fact that when I was living in Georgia, I was like hanging out with friends a lot and just kind of doing like, normal everyday things and just like not not a really care in the world but then i would get depressed because i'm like wow i'm not really pursuing a career i'm not making money like where am i going in life so then i moved up to massachusetts to like take my professional life seriously and got two jobs and like worked all the time and now i'm depressed because i haven't like spent time with friends or family and so like even me personally it's it's hard you know to to separate your values from your monetary wealth, not to mention the fact that this is how the world is organized. If you don't make money, you can't pay your rent and you can't feed yourself. And then the whole society tells you you're a loser and no one wants to talk to you. So what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. I remember a while back, you guys talked about a debt jubilee. And like, I remember that kind of coming close to being possible because of the you know coronavirus pandemic in 2020. But that like, and then I thought about, granted, this is more like theory, but I feel like that would even instill less trust in like currency being an actual like resource. Yes. Like people would lose the value in that more so, you know? Yes. We've talked about this on the show before. We talked about the concept of debt, which is related deeply to the concept of money in one of my favorite episodes. Episode 28, Debt End. Yes. Thank you, Daniel. Episode 28, Debt End. And uh, historically, these debt jubilees, as you call them, Anthony, which is a total wholesale forgiveness of debt was normal for most of human history. Governments, kings, civilizations, they would ensure this to happen every few years. In some cases, a cyclical, you know, you would expect it. Oh, so it's happened before. Yeah. I never knew this happened. This was the norm for almost all of human history. It's only been in the, the recent few hundred years that this, that this doesn't happen, where that they acknowledge that Debt, if it's allowed to accumulate uncontrolled, destroys economies. It destroys people's lives, and it ultimately destroys your civilization. But the problem is, is that everything now is dependent upon debt. They were running in an area where debt was something that would happen between individuals, but now the entire economic system is dependent upon debt in order to function as its very basis. If you had a debt jubilee now, as you rightly point, not only does it first shake everyone's faith in the fact that money is this totally made up thing that we've agreed upon to represent this arbitrary exchange of value, but rather than that, the entire way that everything is constructed, homes, 
the things that we quote unquote own, the larger uh, macroeconomic theories are dependent upon the constant generation of debt. And if we were to release it, then the entire thing implodes. There is no economy without debt because the economy itself is debt. The economy is built, and, and we talked about this before, Daniel, profit itself is built on the fact that we are taking debt from the future, from the future health of this planet, from the future ability of civilizations, of individuals in order to survive on a climate change free world with beautiful biodiversity and instead taken that away from the future and turned that into wealth for now. Well, that is a debt we will ultimately have to repay. And it's part of the thinking that we need to get to, that we need to repay this now. There is no debt jubilee for the doom of all humanity. And that is unfortunate, but that's a reality we're going to have to face. Well. Actually, if you put yourself in the shoes of like the earth itself, where it's like, oh, here I come, debt jubilee, and then like it just like scorched earth, everything dies. I mean, it's kind of like the same concept. Sure. If you want to think about the earth as a lifeless ball of rock, <laughs> that sure seems like a waste to me. So um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push back a little bit on you there, Daniel. But you know, it's so sad that these mainstream thinking can't wrap its mind around that. Uh, are y'all familiar with William Nordhaus, the Nobel Prize winning economist? No, I am not. <laughs> oh, yes. I was, uh, was reading one of his uh, classic texts the other day, uh, <laughs> reflecting on uh, progress economic theory has really <laughs> progressed past its uh, Keynesian Marxist roots. Over the exactly. So you, <laughs> you, you have read him. So no, in 2018, uh, he won the Nobel Prize along with, I think, somebody else, but whatever, we're going to talk about him because he's got my hate boner for the day. And his big innovation was a paper that was about climate change and the larger macroeconomy and the ways that it's going to be affected in the future by this disaster that's unfurling in front of us. His ultimate conclusion was that the global GDP, our holy number of numbers, which we all worship at, is only going to be affected 2.7% by the end of the century by climate change. So it's actually not bad. We don't have to worry about it so much. And in fact, in his opinion, a lot of the mitigation strategies would impact GDP more, so we shouldn't touch them. So every every politician, every government in the world is like, this is the best fucking news I've ever heard. And then they gave him a million dollars. Yeah, they gave him a fucking Nobel Prize. Uh, granted, it's the fake Nobel Prize, the economic prize. They gave him a Nobel Prize with a million dollars and and tenure for anything for the rest of his life. He can do anything he wants because he said, oh yeah, just keep doing what you're going to do at worst 2.7% damage. Well, if you read his paper and you had even just the smallest amount of understanding of fucking anything, you would say this is absolute bullshit. He ignored 87% of economies that of the economy that feeds into the GDP, the global GDP, because in his opinion, they were industries that wouldn't, wouldn't be affected by weather that changed. So things like, uh, let me see, I actually have a list here. Let me pull this up. Hold up. You're saying, so this like world-renowned economist now who got paid a million dollars for his work, basically he like sat down and he was like, you know, people are saying that uh, glo global climate change is going to impact business, but um, what about business that people do indoors? Yeah, basically. That has nothing to do with the climate. <laughs> basically, that's basically <laughs> what he did. I, I, I'm going to give you some hard numbers here. So he said that three degrees Celsius of warming would reduce global GDP by just 2.1%, and six degrees of Celsius global warming would reduce GDP just by 8.5%. And then he went on and calculated that a very mild carbon tax that would keep global warming to about four degrees Celsius, about that three degrees Celsius thing you, you talked about earlier, 
would actually cost the GDP 4%. So therefore, it was more affordable to do nothing than it was to do something, in his conclusion. So uh, that, was, that was what he came up with. And uh, politicians loved it. Companies loved it. Governments, they're like, this is the greatest fucking thing. Give that man a Nobel Prize. And then economists, climate scientists started reading his papers. I'm like, this guy is the dumbest man alive. So he ignored industries that account for 87% of GDP on the assumption that, quote, they are undertaken in carefully controlled environments that will not be directly affected by climate change, end quote. So literally, Daniel, just like you're saying that, oh, it doesn't get hot inside an office building, so checkmate climate change, uh, office industries will not be affected. So like if I work in an office and I order parts or like, like I'm a supply chain manager, mm -hmm. even though the like global supply chain collapses... I can just sit at my computer and still pretend to like ask machine shops in China to ship like carbon forks for bicycles halfway around the world. Yeah, it, like literally, he, he ignored uh, manufacturing, underground mining, transportation, communication, finance, insurance, non-coastal real estate, retail, wholesale oh trade, government services. All these he said would never be affected by climate change. And this is I love the idea of underground mining. Like, well. They're going to be underground. So, like, what do they care about hurricanes? Or like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, if you're in a coal mine, then who the fuck cares what the temperature is above ground? Yeah. No, quite, quite literally. So, he initially started doing this research and coming up with these ideas in 1991. He's continued writing the same paper for 30 years. Um, he continues getting tons of money from it. And the, the IPCC report has continued to uh, echo these things. In the latest IPCC report, there was a section that said, economic activities such as agriculture, forestry, fisheries, and mining are exposed to the weather and thus vulnerable to climate change. Other economic activities such as manufacturing services largely take place in controlled environments and are not really exposed to climate change and therefore will not be affected. Literally quoting from his paper in the latest IPCC report, we are still, and this is, I think is a really good measure of, of the fact that we are constantly trying to drive home, Daniel, that these reports are terrible and at the very, very best are drastic underestimates and are filled with bad science that is, is always on the way of saying things aren't going to be as bad as possible as, as they really are, which is why we almost always are hearing in reports faster than expected, worse than expected, sooner than expected, whatever. So th these ideas have completely infected not only the ideas of or the thinking of governments, of politicians, of uh, other economists, of, of, of the leaders, quote unquote, of our future, but also the scientists themselves who are, are pinning these papers. And that is a huge failure of imagination. Uh, there was a report that came out recently from the UK that they have basically given up on any sort of climate mitigation strategy and instead are trying to estimate what their economy will look like at 3.5 degrees Celsius of warming. They think it's going to be a relatively minor damage to them and they're going to continue business as usual. In no doubt, echoing the words of this paper. And this is a huge misunderstanding. This is an idea that technology, that the ability of the, the individual to overcome this stuff is, is, is something that will reign supreme despite the fact that, you know, the weather's going to be different. This is confusing weather for climate. Just because it rains doesn't mean that it's climate change. Climate change, like we're trying to drive home with these ProPublica articles, with the, the, the constant shows that we're doing here, are about the wholesale transformation of the earth and the biodiversity that exists upon it. This makes areas that were once luscious rainforests into savannas and deserts. That is happening in the Amazon. We are very close to a tipping point where once we pass a certain amount of trees destroyed through fire, both accidental and intentional, and other influences, we will lose the Amazon rainforest. It will become a savanna. 
that savanna will eventually become a desert, and that is climate change. Climate change is not it's raining outside or it's five degrees hotter today. Climate change is the earth that I once knew is different and the life that once depended upon the fact that things don't change very fast, that things are set up in a very specific niche that it evolved for over millions and billions of years are now gone, and that life is gone in that process. So that is the future we're facing, and we need to wholesale change how we're thinking about this. This is long-term thinking. We are in a short-term world, right? We think about everything short-term because our technology, our ability to change stuff has gotten so powerful that we can only conceive of things in this dramatic amount of change. And that dramatic amount of change can happen in shorter and shorter amounts of time. So like I could write a book now in a couple of days that would have taken me weeks or years before. I can create a, an animation in a couple of hours that would take me a year before. We have incredible amounts of power to do things quicker and it has changed how we think about things. Our timeline has shrunk dramatically. And this is only very recent development. Think for example, if I was somebody who would design a cathedral, for example, I would design it, we would start construction, and I would die. And then three or four or five generations later, that cathedral might be done. Some of these cathedrals that we see across Europe took 800 years to build. But still, somebody started that process and somebody at the end finished it. That's long-term fucking thinking. In, and I'm going to talk about some of the stuff in the ancient world. There were massive earthworks projects massive agricultural engineering that would take thousands of years to fully complete. But that is long-term thinking. We've abandoned that process, even though that is the dominant main way of thinking that we've approached for throughout history. And it should be no surprise that our total abandonment of the earth and the way that we interact with it coincides very closely with our shorter and shorter attention spans and outlooks on the future. So I want to go back in time very quickly. Um, and this is, this is, I know that we're getting long again. It's another longer show, but this is, this is the tail end. Um, and I, I want to talk about a different mindset. You know, this is what we've been building up to. Well, David, you keep talking about how this is a failure of imagination about how we're thinking about things wrong. So what is the right way to do that? What are you insinuating should be the way that we've done? And I, I want to start this by saying, this is not my idea. Uh, this is not even a new idea. This is actually the base idea that, once again, for most of human history, we have considered. And that is the fact that we humans inevitably are affecting the environment. That's just something we do. There's no way around that. We've done that for tens of thousands of years. And there's an incredible project called Archaeal Globe that has started documenting this. And I, I made Anthony, Anthony, I'm going to call you on you here. Mm -hmm. I made you read these papers. <laughs> So you, you spoiled answers. But before, you know, the last couple of days when you started reading this stuff, what was your history of agriculture? Like, what, what did you know about agriculture and ancient agriculture? Uh, not much. I, give me any facts. Like, when did it start? Agriculture? I, I, I don't know. I, no, you did, didn't learn that in school? I, no. I mean, I probably did, but, like, I was very aloof. Uh, <laughs> And didn't enjoy learn like I didn't enjoy learning that way. What came so. first, hunter gatherers? Okay. This is not the answer like you're looking for. Farmers. I think it was hunting and gathering, was it not? Yeah, well, that's right. Uh, Anthony's <laughs> just trying to tell us that he was all too cool, like in the back of the class. Uh, like I wish it was like it that. It was more just me being dumb and spacing out. No one here is dumb, Anthony. So. 
the typical way this is taught in school, if you're taught this at all, which apparently Anthony wasn't, is that there were hunters and gatherers and they wandered around the world until some place called the Fertile Crescent in Mesopotamia, people discovered that you could farm. And because of the very fertile land there, it was easy to farm. And so they started doing it. And that's where civilization formed. And then they spread out and spread their knowledge and their crops around the world. And then Europeans became the best and smartest because they had the best land or the worst land and they had to adapt or whatever. And that they deserved to conquer the world and uh, white people are the best. That's that's the history that you're taught in school. Maybe not in those words, but that's pretty much how it's come across. The actual history of of archaeo globe has discovered through the interviews of hundreds of of archaeologists and and hundreds and hundreds of archaeological sites is that agriculture has spontaneously evolved multiple times all around the world for thousands of years. People were were cultivating bananas ten thousand years ago. Uh, we were growing sorghum in other parts of the world. Uh, millet before we were growing maize. It, there is so many cultures that invented agriculture so many times in so many places in so many unique environments. And, uh, and also that it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like agriculture was invented and then people like immediately shifted, but they were going back and forth. There was like a blending of yes. cultures trading and some people hunted and gathered. Some people did a little bit of uh, cultivation here, a little bit of cultivation there. It's a very much more blended history. That's not a very cut and dry, like, Oh, people uh, discovered agriculture and the world changed. Yes, exactly. You would do it, then you wouldn't do it. You know, there were evolutions. It was something used. It was just another survival tool. It wasn't necessarily a way of life, though in some places you'd convert completely. It's a vast, interesting history and uh, something that uh, I encourage you to read this article. We linked it on the website. It is called The Deep Anthropocene. Mm -hmm. Is that what it's called? I think that's how you say it. I'm pretty sure that's (laughs) how you say it. Uh, it, it's just a very brief overview of this, and and there's a lot of elements I want to get into. But I I love I love ancient history. I love this dialogue between hunters and gatherers, between agriculture and how they blend. And it's nowhere near as simple as we are made to believe. This is important, and I'm gonna I'm gonna get into why here. It's hunters and gatherers we like to think of as a way of living and surviving without affecting the environment. You're out there, you're hunting stuff, but you know, you're living at peace, equality with the environment, right? That That's the, the myth. But in reality, hunters and gatherers have a long history of disrupting the environment, right? How many megafauna were hunted to death by our ancient forebears? The woolly mammoth, the giant sloth, all these things were wiped out by the overpredation of humans or early human ancestors of these creatures. We were affecting the environment. The animals that you would choose to kill, choose to leave alone, the plants you would harvest and you wouldn't, the food you would eat and then spread their seeds or whatever around as a hunter-gatherer made dramatic impacts and changes on the environment around the world. And these are measurable. And when agriculture hit the scene, then it's that much more dramatic. So we're not even talking about vast plains of, of, of crops and stuff like we see today, but just very localized, small amounts of farming. Um, you know, sometimes on the order of tens of kilometers, but still nothing like what we know today. And that has a dramatic impact on the environment. We can see it. We can see it in carbon records where areas were burned in order to clear land for their crops. We can see it in the evolution of their microclimates, of the flora and fauna biodiversity in these areas. And yes, a farm or a agricultural project can change an environment. There's a great example here in ancient Mycenaean, in ancient Mycenae, what is now Greece, uh, 3,000 years ago, there's an area called the Copaic Basin, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, 
that had been a wetland lake since the end of the Ice Age. Glaciers had come down, carved out this, this big hole in the ground. It had filled up with frozen water, eventually it filled with silt and turned to this wetland. And it was just this very fertile land, but not something that's appropriate for agriculture because it's filled with water and it floods. Well, these ancient Mycenaeans cleared out a 15 square kilometer area and turned into this incredibly fertile land. And they did that by complex drainage systems, by canals, by sluice gates. And they, they drained a swamp 3,000 years ago. Took them decades, 100 years plus to complete that long-term thinking. And they turned this into an incredibly fertile area for growing. That loss of a swamp, of course, affects the microclimate area and has very dramatic actual impacts in the biodiversity and the, the larger climate systems of, of, of the area around there and the spreading out from beyond that. The Mycenaeans died. They died out for a variety of reasons. Their, their earthworks, their agricultural innovations were lost. This filled back up into a swamp and nobody figured out how to return this to a productive area, quote unquote, again until the 19th century thousands of years later. We think we have these incredible innovations now, but we are so often just following in the footsteps of people who have come before us, but who were more patient and had more long-term thinking. This makes it sound like humans are always perpetually doomed to climate change, like it was inevitable. I mean, yes and no. So um, as, they, as these archaeologists point out, that land use change has always been a big driver of climate change. And yeah, we've been impacting our climate for, as we're starting to understand, for tens of thousands of years. And a lot of that is is locally driven, right? I mean, we talked about that in our desertification episode where local changes impact uh, the rates of desertification because land use changes impact uh, local humidity and, and uh, surface temperatures. And as the archaeologists also point out, that there's a lot of pastoral people who reverse desertification through the introduction of grazing animals and practices. And I think what's really interesting, particular about what this group is talking about is the so-called um, pristine myth, which you touch on, David, about basically how the narrative that the earth is this natural pristine thing that is separate from humans, and it really supports this uh, pre-colonial narrative and, and like racist attitude that is like Western man came to North America, for example, and found this like pristine natural world, and then we like cultivated it and created mm -hmm. this thing. When in fact, Native Americans have been pointing out, and I want to play a clip um, from that conference I went to last year of a, a man from a, a, a tribe here talking about how Native Americans have been stewarding the earth for thousands of years. And I think what they're really pointing out, David, because you mentioned, you know, we've been uh, overhunting animal species for a long time, but it's, it's not necessarily a good or bad thing that humans have had an impact on their environment. It's that we have been an integral part of environments. And species have co-evolved with us. Plants, other animals, species have responded to our practices. We've encouraged the growth of certain things. Other things have responded to us. And you can't separate human beings from the natural world. We're as part of it as anything else. So, so here's just a quick quote from the article that I really like, David. They write, quote, in the pristine myth paradigm from the natural sciences, as the geographer William Denovan called it, human societies are recent destroyers, or at the very least disturbers, of a mostly pristine natural world. Denovan was reacting against the portrayal of pre-1492 America as an untouched paradise, and he used the substantial evidence of indigenous landscape modification to argue that the human presence was perhaps more visible in, in 1492 
1750. The pristine myth also accounts for why places without contemporary intensive land use are often dubbed wilderness, such as areas of the Americas depopulated by the great post-Columbian die-off. Such interpretations perpetuated by scientists have long supported colonial narratives in which indigenous hunter-gatherer and even agricultural lands are portrayed as unused and ripe for productive use by colonial settlers. End quote. And they go on to like uh, use John Muir as an example, this great conservationist uh, who was a friend of uh, Teddy Roosevelt, and together they preserved a bunch of the natural world. But it was a lot because they saw the natural world as this pristine thing that they needed to preserve and, you know, preserve their trophy animals that they liked to hunt. And in pursuit of that goal, they would kick off indigenous people from the land, for instance, in uh, Yellowstone National Park, just kicking off indigenous people, like basically regarding them as disturbers of the pristine natural world, when in reality, these people are fully integrated and part of what made that natural landscape what it was. Yes, exactly, Daniel. And this gets down to what I'm trying to get across on this episode, is that the fact is we need to acknowledge that we will always and have always had a dramatic effect on the environment, on the biodiversity, and on the climate. That is just the nature of the human relationship of these three things. The way that we have to provide for ourselves is something that dictates we must affect these things. That's fine. It's done. The environmental thinking that we have to return to some arbitrary date that we've set, and in this case, in terms of climate change, the pre-industrial area where we're trying to get back to only one and a half degrees Celsius above pre-industrial, that type of thinking is the same type of thinking as this wilderness thinking, as this pristine environment thinking, and it's wrong. You know, yeah, in terms of, of coming impact, we do need to get to those numbers, but that's not how we should be thinking about it. That's not how we should be framing it. And I think these types of framings pay into these larger economic conversations, these larger treaties, the weaseling way that politicians, economists, corporations, etc. can get around actually doing anything substantive in order to push this idea that they're actually making a change, while the whole time letting the environment die, letting these biodiversities systems collapse. To go back to the article, the reason this Archaeo Globe study was done in the first place was because of a data set called HYDE, H-Y-D-E, which is the History Database of the Global Environment. And as Daniel briefly mentioned, the land use, which is really what we're talking about here, either hunter-gatherer land use, agricultural land use, and today, you know, all the variable ways that we use land use in, in larger and larger amounts, is an important part of climate change. In fact, up till 1950, when we really started burning that fucking oil, Land use was the largest driver of climate change. But this Hyde database, which is a record of how land use has been done over the past few centuries, thousands of years, was based originally on these data sets from the 1960s, which were quite honestly naive, incorrect, and racist. Uh, European and American thinking during that time was, as Daniel points out, based in these wilderness ideas, these pristine nature ideas, and then people came in and started doing, you know, the Fertile Crescent shit, Mesopotamia, and then here we are today. But that's wrong. And so these models today that we have, because Hyde is an important data set for running climate models, are based on incorrect data from the very core. And hopefully the developments of the Archaeo Globe and the efforts of the archaeologists and scientists, researchers involved in this will help generate better models that are more responsible and have better indigenous and native inputs on how we use land use. We'll get us to a better point, but 
What we really need is this thinking. The, the way that we come in and interpret land has to be changed. And the idea that land is wilderness, that it's pristine, and that we should set it aside for no human interaction or consumption, um, I think actually does the opposite, Daniel. If we're talking about these systemic problems, if we're talking about these ways that interacting and creating things, capital in this case, can be damaging, I can't think of a better example. So Teddy Roosevelt, John Muir, we created these vast national parks, these wildland areas, these state forests, whatever. Setting aside this land, typically kicking native people off of it, often violently, in order to create these vast parks for, you know, Americans to use or whatever. That was the idea. We're going to return nature back to its pristine and natural place so that people can enjoy it. And even today, we can tell you that there's nothing pristine or natural about these. These forest areas are actively managed by the Bureau of Land Management, just typically not very well. Certainly not as well as they would have been if they were still inhabited by native people. But the problem with kicking everybody off an area and setting it aside is that suddenly you've created an area that is ripe for the taking. So if somebody is interpreting this land as not being used because that's the way they declared it, then somebody says, well, when can I use it? Can I use that land? Please let me use that land. Federal land, please let me on that. I want to cut down those trees. I want to frack that oil. I want to harvest that salmon. And you know what? As time has gone on, the government has said, okay, yeah, you can do that. Okay, yeah, I'll let you in here. Oh, this ancient forest? Well, you know, the, the GDP, so go ahead, chop that down. Uh, Joe Biden, God bless him, he says, no fracking in federal land, just frack everywhere else. So, you know, the way around that, of course, is, well, what if we just sold federal land? All of these things, by setting aside and saying this doesn't belong to anybody, we just have to append the word yet. And that's what we've done. We've created this vast problem, made it even worse, because... Uh, the one right that, that, that these native people would have had in order to defend this land, property rights, which are its own fucking evil separate thing, is what enabled these people to come in and exploit it even worse now. So this thinking, this thinking has, has enabled vast amounts of much more evil to be done in the future. And larger than that, though, we need to be thinking about not in terms of restoring back to a natural, pristine wilderness that never existed in the first place and hasn't existed for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years, however long humans and our ancestors have been walking upright, hunting animals and, and accidentally spreading stuff around. That, that never existed. We are animals. We always have been. And animals have a dramatic effect on the ecosystems. End of conversation. We've talked about that. Established fact. We understand that. So let's stop trying to deny that. We should see ourselves... As stewards of biodiversity, we shouldn't be trying to set these biodiversity targets where we're trying to, you know, like blah, 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 blah. We should just be like, of course, our reason here on Earth and our ability to keep staying alive on this Earth is wholly dependent upon the fact that we are effective stewards who can generate biodiversity. The vast recent history of us is destroying biodiversity, bulldozing it and turning it into profit at every place that we can. But for most of human history, even though we have been affecting climate change, even though we have been changing micro ecosystems and, and climates and whatever, we have been stewards of biodiversity. There are so many examples of ancient people and still people today who come into an environment and say, I can make this better. I can increase the amount of life here. I can make this a fully functioning, healthy ecosystem. And I can take off a part of that for myself to live with it. And I can do that effectively. Ancient people were able to push off the desertification of, of large parts of the Sahara by hundreds of years through these practices. Through today, we see, as Daniel mentioned, the careful stewardship of many native people uh, in the United States, in uh, all across Americas, 
resulted in much more biodiversity, healthy ecosystems, preventing these large massive forest fires we're talking about earlier, uh, by this careful stewardship and being a part of the land at protector who is there to encourage biodiversity. Maybe that's not the word they would have used, but that is ultimately what they're doing. And that's how we should see our way to interact with the world. We're not returning stuff. We're not fixing stuff. We need to acknowledge that we are here to try and generate as much life as possible instead of just constantly taking life. And if we can change how we think about this, how we approach these problems to make that our goal, not how can we solve climate change, but how can we preserve the biodiversity that has brought us to this point and be good stewards of that biodiversity, increase it, and guarantee that for countless generations, human, animal, and otherwise, we can continue being part of this system and making it better and better forever. Then we're onto something. That's long-term thinking. That's building a cathedral over hundreds or thousands of years, eons into the future. Here's Cassius Spears Jr., member of the Tribal Council Narragansett Indian Tribe. Some of this knowledge that we talk about, and I do, and I see this time and time again, we talk about companion planting and cover crops and things like this. These are based off of our principles. Three sisters, companion planting, cover crop systems. We, we did no-till practices. We did all of these things that we talk about, regenerative practices, are things, are, are practices that we've already done, perfected. When colonists came here, they talk about, you can read in the journals, about how it was a bounty, how there was so much food, how much there was so much fowl and, and fish and everything else. Um, that didn't come from just God as they attributed it to. That came from good practices, best management practices done by the indigenous populations here. And we were able to feed there's estimates of over 100, 100 million people living on this continent, 100 million people. And we had complex political systems and agriculture systems that allowed us to feed those people without jail cells, without court systems, without police, um, without needs for banks or any, any of these institutions that we hold so dear today. So... I say this just because I want you guys to, I know we get caught in a frame of thinking and we know that we have a system in which we need to work within, but think outside the box. It sounds like, uh, I have no hope. That's, that's, I felt like I was being so hopeful on this show and that's what you take away from this. Where's your faith? Well, tell me then, tell me then, Anthony, why don't you have any hope? It just seems like I don't have faith in the people that have the ability to make these changes. I don't have faith mm -hmm. that they will because it hurts their bottom line and that mm -hmm. there's no way to make money off of it. And I just feel like we're in a loop of, not even a loop, it just seems like we're heading in a bad direction. So how do we break the loop? Vote. <laughs> that's, my, that's my trigger word. Um, you know, in an ideal world, that would be the case. But with, uh, I don't want to ban fracking Joe Biden as our best option, that is not the case. So. What do we do, Daniel? What's that word when you give, like you give a gift and you give, you receive a gift? I think it starts with an R. Reciprocity. Yeah, reciprocity. I I can't believe I got that. That's a new one. Look, I I hear what Anthony's saying. Like, obviously, there's powerful people who control the world, and like, what can we do to like break the loop? But I think of like in this context, I think of the idea of reciprocity, which big surprise 
a lot of indigenous people talk about as being central to tradition and, and their cultural way of life. I think it's it's a simple idea, really, is the earth gives to us and we give back to the earth. You know, what I take away from this is how can we incorporate this thinking into more of our everyday life? Because, yeah, humans have always had an impact on the earth, but those impacts were one person at a time. One person going out into the forest and finding a wild strawberry, and rather than taking all the strawberries, just taking one or two, promising to spread the seeds, right? That's reciprocity, acknowledging the gift, being thankful and grateful for it, and promising to uh, pay it forward. And what's so wrong about that? Why can't we think more like that? In, in our day-to-day. And we, we go out on this earth, we interact with people, we tread on the earth. Um, maybe we could just be a little bit more aware of, of our individual actions, our impacts, because it adds up. One person, and then two people, and then four people, and then all the way up to seven billion people. And I know it's a cliche, I know it is to say, well, you know, start with yourself. And pro- there's probably some saying about little actions added up is like mm-hmm. big action or something like that. But I mean, the other thing is to recognize that it's the institutions and systems that control our lives and burn it down. So do, do the reciprocity in your day to day and see how you can burn down the institutions that are causing the most, most harm. These ideas I found in conversations with, with people, with normies with uh, the newly woke and uh, even people who are skeptical, I find are really empowering for individuals. If you can shift the way that you think to say, I'm, I'm trying to prevent a bad thing from happening and instead say, I'm trying to generate as much life as possible. I'm trying to give mm. as much back to the earth as I can. People yeah. get really excited. They say, oh, you know, I, 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 I want to do that. It's the same thing when you see somebody garden or something for the first time. And with their hands, they see the life that they can create, you know, hopefully your green thumb. Uh, it, it's like a magic moment. And it, it really empowers somebody and, and gives them a deep connection to a whole world that they didn't know that, that they were missing before. And thinking like that and living your life in that sort of manner is, is infectious. And if, if you can start generating good, uh, not just in terms of, you know, actual biodiversity, but in your interactions with others, uh, your societal responsibilities, uh, the culture that you can create versus the culture that you can consume, these types of things do spread and they have actual differences, not just on your own well-being, which is dramatic, but on those around you and that spreads. So any sort of actual dramatic change in our, our quest for this biodiversity in, in order to stave off climate change or, or just adapt to it the best that we can, not just as individuals and a civilization, but as a global community that includes all the, the life, the animals, the plants, the, uh, the insects, everything in between. We need that sort of, of way of living. Uh, it spreads really well. And uh, it, it's an incredibly powerful idea that I think, um, you know, have these conversations, play this for people and uh, get them on board. And you'll see, I mean, I've seen it helps a lot, even in your, your own life. I think I'm just going to leave it like that. It certainly is a lot to think about. As always, Daniel. But think about it. We hope you will and do something and live your life that way uh, is our, is all we can hope. <laughs> it's all we can. Is all we can hope. Even if we fumble through it, we'll get there in the end.
Uh, you can find more information about this show, all the links, resources, and other information, as well as a full transcript eventually of this episode on our website, ashesashes.org. As always, a lot of time and research goes into making these episodes possible. And, you know, we're never going to use advertising to support this show. So if you like it, would like us to keep going, you, our listener, can support us by giving us a review, recommending us to a friend, hit that five-star like button on the podcast application that you're using, spread the message, talk to your friends and family, tell them to spread the life, keep the reciprocity alive, um, and uh, support us on patreon.com slash ashesashescast, where you can send a little bit of that money. The money is not real. But we still love it. Also, check us out on twitch.tv at Ashes Ashes Cast every Tuesday from 8 to 9.30. Eastern time. If you aren't a hip Twitch viewer like we are and you don't want to see us say awesome stuff that was probably going to get us banned from the uh, platform, uh, then you can find us on so many social media networks. We are on all of them at Ashes Ashes Cast. Come check that out. But even better than all of that, uh, visit us on our Discord. If you go to ashesashes.org, you click on the top community. There's a Discord invite link there. And uh, it's an awesome chat application. We all hang out there. We talk all the time. An incredible community of hundreds of like-minded listeners, thinkers, and doers. And we hope that you will join and become one of them. You can also contact us at contact at ashesashes.org. Send us your thoughts. We read them. We appreciate them. Thank you. We have come back after a long period of hiatus as we retool the show. Let us know your thoughts. We want to hear about it. If you hate Anthony, if you want a headshot to date him, you know, email us, message us, tweet us, uh, Instagram, DM us, uh, post on Discord. We'd love to see it. We want all that and more. And uh, we will hopefully be back very soon. I, I think we're on a two-week schedule now with more awesome information, uh, analysis, rants, and whatever else your heart desires. We hope to see you then. Thanks for having me on. Thank you, Anthony. And until next time, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.